they found him walking alone along the interstate. Almost immediately, I knew something was horribly wrong with him. Ever since he was admitted, late that windy Thursday night, I knew. The whole hospital was like the feeling you get in a newly deceased patient's room, all silent and stale. It was oppressive. I usually let the staff take their hair down, so to speak, once the night shift starts. They'd play music or order pizza, joke around. There wasn't joking that night, though. No one had the stomach for it. I didn't get around to seeing him until the next day after lunch. The nurses at the desk just stared at me as I walked up to his door. My hand lingered on the handle of the door, and I could have sworn that they held their breath as I walked inside the room. The first thing I noticed was the heat. It had an almost physical force to it, like a gust of wind, and hit me dead on the face, drying my eyes, nose, and throat. I grabbed the handle to close the door, but found that, too, incredibly hot, and had to pull away. My hand was throbbing in pain. I poked my head out through the door of the room and shouted to the first nurse that was unfortunate enough to meet my eyes. What the hell is going on in here? But my anger melted away immediately. Her face was blank and her eyes said it all. Fear, unadulterated, like I've seen so many times before in passing patients. As I looked at her frightened, helpless expression, I saw it mirrored in every face in the room. This was a situation none of us had, or could have, prepared for. I steeled myself this time, and went back inside, closing the door with my foot. He was behind the curtain at the far end of the room, and the trek there was the most physically demanding thing I had ever had to do. With each step, the heat seemed to intensify until I was sweating and panting and coughing because my lungs were so dry. An enormous pool of water had formed underneath the AC unit beneath the window. It was working tirelessly, grinding and churning, with no effect. He was surprisingly lucid, and sat up in bed as soon as he saw me. I was immediately taken by the stark contrast between us. I was drenched in sweat, burning from the intense, unexplainable heat. But there wasn't a drop on him, and his lips weren't cracked or dry at all. Despite this, it was clear he was deeply affected. His eyes occasionally rolled back in his head like a sort of tick, and he frequently brought the palm of his right hand hard against his temple. An ugly purple bruise had formed there. There were also odd reddish-brown discolorations along his arms and neck that I had never seen before. I stared at them. Neither of us said a word, and I was barely aware of the minutes as they passed by. I stared because I thought I saw the strange splotches move twisting and flowing along his body in a sort of synchronized, syncopated wave. They were beautiful in a way, going to and fro. My trance was broken when the man spoke. His voice was haggard and raw, quiet, but it had some hidden power to it. With the determined expression, he looked at me and said a phrase that included a word in a language I didn't recognize. We wait for Lachladeg. In confusion, I reached down to his chart. The line for the first name was blank. There was only a last, Smith, the most generic name imaginable, and not one whose owner I'd peg as a speaker of an exotic foreign language. Especially in duress, people tended to revert to what they were most comfortable with. The door opened suddenly, and one of the nurses stood gasping in the hallway, overtaken by the immense heat that I had somehow forgotten about. What's this man's first name? I asked him. You're needed in room 206. They're having a bad reaction, he said. What's his name? I asked again. I'm not sure, the nurse replied. I think Zagorby? 
I was getting angry, but I wasn't sure why. No, this man, I said, pointing at the smith who stared at me from his bed. I don't know, ma'am. I'll find out, the nurse said. You're needed in 206. I pushed the chart into the nurse's chest as I walked away, annoyed as all hell that I was the only doctor on call that day. My mind was burning with questions, and none of them revolved around Mr. Zagorby, a 53-year-old man who was having an allergic reaction to his medication because he forgot to disclose the allergy the past 40 times we asked him to. Zagorby's condition was worse than I had first thought, which helped to quiet the anger in me. It also meant that I spent the greater part of the morning in room 206. By the time I managed to get back, Smith's room was completely empty. We moved him, like you told us to, one of the nurses said when they saw how confused I looked. I stared at her and she stumbled on. Steph, gave me your note that we were supposed to move him to the top floor. I never gave those orders, I said. Where's Stephanie? The nurse looked around before paging Stephanie over the intercom, telling her to come to the desk. I waited, but as I did, a sinking feeling grew in the pit of my stomach. I stopped. What room is he in? I shouted, taking off for the stairs. The nurse fumbled with her paper list. Uh, 445. That climb was a complete blur. As I ran down the fourth floor hall, I could see that the door to room 445 was wide open. I didn't need to go inside. I knew what I would find. It was empty. I stepped outside and opened the roof access door. A lot of the staff used the roof for their smoke breaks. The alarm had been disconnected years ago. Walking up the metal stairs, I opened the door into the blazing sunlight. There were only the rooftop HVAC units spinning wildly away amidst discarded cigarette butts and bird droppings. We put the hospital on lockdown and a search was performed. Plenty of people remembered seeing him come in the night before, but we came up empty. He was gone. The police said they would put out an APB, and I went home after lunch thanks to Dr. Williams, who graciously agreed to start his shift early. With that sight of the empty fourth floor room, I had no will. It was like it had been sapped out of me. I needed a rest. By the time I got home, I was in a full-blown depression I could not explain. I didn't stop to say hello to Sam or Cindy. I marched up the stairs and climbed directly into bed. I wasn't tired, but the idea of walking around and interacting with the world was horrible to me, so I resigned myself to sleep. I had a dream like no other dream I've ever had. I was standing on top of an enormous rocky mountain, looking down into a wooded valley of immense pine trees. The wind blew gently down through the trees and up the mountain face until hitting me with cool, crisp air. The sun was shining, warm and bright, and I stood there, alone, for several minutes, finding the entire scene incredibly pleasant and refreshing. All at once, the wind stopped, and the sound of the woods, birds chirping, leaves rustling, was entirely gone. I looked down into the valley and saw a single pine tree sway violently to the right and then abruptly correct itself. The one directly in front of it swayed to the left before straightening, followed by a sort of alternating domino effect as each tree bent and corrected itself in turn. It became terrifyingly apparent to me that there was some enormous thing swaying the trees as it passed through the woods. The sound shot through my ears then, all at once, loud and piercing, cracking wood and screaming birds as the enormous thing scraped and crawled through the trees, now toppling and splintering them underneath its gargantuan body, which continued to pick up speed until all I could see was the blur of destruction, the browns and greens of the trees and earth flying and tumbling along the ground, and the strange iridescent grays and pinks of the thing plowing through the earth. Suddenly, it was on top of me, 
It had scaled the side of the mountain, and the only thing I could take in with my senses was its absolute enormity. There was a loud, rushing sound, like a train inside a tunnel. But I wasn't frightened. For some inexplicable reason, I felt a warmth come over me, complete and overwhelming, and with it came a rush of such intense peace that I wanted to stay there, looking up at the enormous thing as it tore through the world for all eternity. I woke to find that it was well into the night. Sam was snoring softly beside me, and the clock on the nightstand read two o'clock. I went down to the kitchen and took a few Xanax, trying the best I could to purge Smith and that enormous plowing thing from my mind. I only laid my head down for a minute or two before I gave up on rest entirely. Despite the medication, I was wide awake. I knew I wouldn't be sleeping. The dream had been like nothing I'd ever seen or experienced before. It was so real too real. In a strange and unexplainable way, it was more real. More real than the memories I had of medical school, my marriage, the birth of my daughter, my whole life. They all seemed like distorted reflections now, like blurry and faded scraps of microfilm, too damaged to tell a story, and only loosely alluding to something forgotten or maybe never acknowledged at all. I dressed in my robe and slippers and went downstairs, popping four caffeine pills and grabbing the keys to the car that still sat at the kitchen table. We lived a ways away from the city, somewhere in the middle of winding, two-lane roads that were more dirt than pavement. I was alone on the drive, my high beams cutting through the darkness. My mind was swirling and my foot rested heavy on the gas pedal, but through some strange trick of the moonlight and pine trees, I was compelled to stop three times and stare at the silhouetted mountains to the north. Each time it turned out to be nothing, when before there looked to be an enormous moving shadow that dove in and out over the peaks. It was the usual late-night crowd at the hospital. Men and women too drunk or high to know where they were, brought there by their friends, all confined to low priority because of the shooting or stabbing that had occurred at exactly the same area of town that the shooting or stabbing had occurred the night before. It was a sight intimately familiar to me, and I paid it even less mind then as I made my way to the administrative office block. I knew what I was looking for. Past the rows of cubicles, along the far wall, was a locked room that contained rows of filing cabinets. They were the personnel files of everyone who worked in Claire Mercy Hospital. Being an employee myself and not part of the administration, I wasn't allowed access, but it wasn't like anyone down there was capable of keeping me out. I raided the desk closest to the door, overturning coffee mugs, sending papers and manila folders sliding to the floor, finding the key hanging from a nail that had been hammered into the interior side of the desk. People were, for the most part, hopelessly predictable unless they were Smith, or, possibly, Stephanie Roberts. That was the name I searched for among the files in the locked room of Claire Mercy Hospital. Stephanie had given the nurse staff the order to move Smith, and had then conveniently disappeared, left right in the middle of her shift. I wasn't one to believe in coincidence. I found her file, and, more importantly, her address. Strangely, she didn't live far from me, only a little further out from the city. I would pay her a visit. I had to pay her a visit. I was spurred on by the strange man's eyes and the unquestionable heat and the bizarre markings and the dream of that gigantic thing that wrecked the world. Stephanie Roberts was my only lead. I hastily scrawled the address onto my wrist with a ballpoint pen and put the key back where I'd found it. I tried my best to get the desk back in order, though I doubted anyone would notice, maybe just the person who sat there. They might plop down in the chair, scourging for some memo or file that they had intended to work on the next day only to find it in a completely different location than where they'd left it. 
their first thought would be the correct one. Someone's been going through my desk. But then reason and logic would come in with their two cents, sending the instinctual idea away. Why would someone do that, they'd say, and the entire conundrum would be put firmly to rest. People are capable of getting away with more than you'd think, precisely because most people don't think that they are. It was about four o'clock by the time I turned onto Farragut Lane, where Stephanie lived. It was a dirt road, barely wide enough for one car, and mine scraped against the tall grass that encroached in on both sides. The mailbox showed the address, but it was another long, desolate drive up a steep road until I arrived at her house. By all accounts, the place resembled a small log cabin. It would have looked picturesque, nestled in a meadow next to the lake, but out at the end of a dirt driveway, flanked on all sides by ancient pines whose needles shook and swayed in the slight early morning breeze, it gave me an uneasy feeling. The feeling became clear when I noticed the figure who sat in a rusty wheelchair on the house's front porch. It was Smith. He doesn't need healing, Dr. Boyer, Stephanie said, opening the front door and walking out onto the porch. I noticed immediately that she had the same rash as the man she had stolen away, the man in the wheelchair she loomed over. The dancing, discolored splotches shot in and out of the sleeves of her t-shirt. The air was crisp and cool. What do you want with him? I stammered as I began mounting the stairs of the porch. Those beautiful shapes on her arms. Wait, she whispered, and in a voice affected by strong emotion. You've seen him too. You bear the mark. My voice was soft, quiet, as I answered. Who? The sower, she answered. The ripper of the earth. He that you, that you met in your dream. I was barely aware of the words that were forming, fleeing from my open mouth. I saw him. He was a mountain. She smiled and said, Would you like to know his name? I watched as her lips moved, but the voice was not solely her own. It was mine as well, mine and Smith's. My voice was joined with theirs as we, in unison, said the terrible name, Grengalek. All at once, the sky was open before me. I couldn't be sure of what I was seeing, or even if I was seeing. There were stars innumerable stars that flew along the edges of galaxies and planets that spun faster and faster around them. I could see strange colors and lights, too spectacular to comprehend. My ears were bombarded with a sound like nothing that could be found on Earth. I saw what looked like amorphous clouds expanding and contracting in the deadness of space, each covered with thousands and thousands of giant, piercing eyes that were affixed yet floating fluidly along each surface. These beings seemed to phase in and out of sight and shape, and I was never sure when they were there or when they were gone. They filled me with such an intense dread that I fell to the floor of the porch, grasping at my ears as the sights and sounds and smells. There were smells, too. Smells of cardamom and cinnamon and burning flesh and sulfur and a multitude of things I could recall, some I had forgotten, and far more that I knew I could never comprehend, bombarded me in an endless torrent. I felt Stephanie at my side, lifting me up. Watch, she said, and pointed to the center. The center, where I saw the starry chair, empty. He is giving this to you, to us, as a gift, Stephanie said. When the time of Lakladeg arrives, the Great One's power will be gone. There shall be no stopping him then, and he shall be free to renew the world a second time. But we, his people, shall be safe safe to populate a new earth with a new god. 
I fell to my knees in honor and in horror as Grengalek writhed and roared. All right, Mr. Zagorby, how are you feel? The words were streaming witlessly out of my mouth, and I was standing in the middle of a patient's room, looking down at his chart. Like shit, the man responded. He went on, but I wasn't listening. I had been on my knees in the dirt, staring at that thing, that entity, while all of space and time swirled madly around me. It was only moments before. The transformation, the transportation maybe, had been so sudden, so complete that when I closed my eyes, I could still see vague shadows of the vapor-like creatures with the many eyes imprinted on the backs of my eyelids. I didn't bother calling for a replacement, and I didn't tell anyone where I was going. I left Mr. Zagorby's chart sitting on his lap on the bed and headed for the elevators. I left the hospital and climbed into my car, knowing full well where I was headed but not knowing what I would find there. As I put the car into reverse and looked up into the rearview mirror, I saw a faint discoloration on the center of my forehead. It was there for only a second before dancing across the surface of my skin into my hairline and fading altogether somewhere behind my left ear. Phantom Space Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman and Kim Scharfenberger. The Sign of the Sower was written and composed by Nate Gutman and read by Kim Scharfenberger. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Phantom Space Pod and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps people find us. If you have questions or comments or just want to chat, you can write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com or visit us at phantomspacefunhouse.com. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>